Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. These are the words of God. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. These are the words of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word this morning. Give us wisdom as we come to it. Give us wisdom that comes by the power of your Holy Spirit. And pray that you would guard the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and the hearts of everyone here as we sit beneath your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. One brief housekeeping note before we dive into the sermon. I apologize, I don't have notes for you. Uh, this morning. Uh, I hope to have them. They'll be on the website later so you can find them. If, if I say something and you need to double check me on it, you can, you can look it up there later on. And we are diving back into the book of James. I think the last time I preached out of James was way back in August, so it has, it has been a bit, but it's good to be back in it. James uh, writes, remember, to Christians who are scattered abroad through the known world at the time. And they're scattered abroad largely because of the unbelieving Jews who have been ravaging and persecuting the church. Many of these Christians who have been persecuted would have been tempted to leave Christ due to the hardships, the mockeries, and the threats that came from following Christ. And so this is why James reminds them at the very beginning of his letter to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. When you fall into various trials, the first thing that uh, James has in mind is the kind of trials that come from being a Christian, from following Christ. But we've looked at how these trials actually, uh, James, I think, on purpose, uses a very general term and, and describes it as various trials, various tests of your faith. And so this has great application for us. Even though we ourselves may not be un undergoing persecution, there's lots of application for us as we are tested in various ways. In this particular passage, James really gets to, uh, th this is a very poignant and particular passage where James gets to the heart of the, uh, gets to the sinner's heart. Really gets to what's going on as you encounter various trials. James reminds these Christians that he is writing to that these trials are and can be endured by resting in God's promises. I'm going to quote here a, a part of a quotation from Calvin. Um, to, to set this up, if these Christians that James is writing to, if they and then we as well would see as, the, as our goal, not earthly happiness, not earthly satisfaction, but rather, as Calvin says, to be crowned in the kingdom of God, it follows that the contests with which the Lord tries us are aids and helps to our happiness. If we, James is writing to these Christians, and one of the things that he wants them to see is that if, if they set their eyes as their ultimate goal, not your earthly satisfaction, not your happiness now, not your uh, rest in the moment, but rather in what God has promised you to come, in the crown of glory that is to come, then 
the trials that beset you, the trials that God brings to you as tests of your faith, really are aids and helps to that happiness, and including to the satisfaction that you have in Christ now. So as we go into this, I'd like to first um, sort of give an overview of the text and make a few comments about it and then highlight some, uh, dig a little deeper into some um, particular sections. In verse chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles with you, please open them and, and look at this with me. In verse 12, James really reiterates the themes of the opening verses of the letter. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. James notes that the, uh, the blessedness of the one who remains steadfast in temptation. The word here for enduring is really, uh, the, it's the verb form of the word for patience that we have up in verse 3. This steadfastness, this fortitude of mind in the midst of trials. James earlier had said back in verses uh, 2 and 3 and 4 that the testing of our faith through trials produces patience. And now at this point he says that when the believer has been fully tested or approved, he will receive the crown of life. So again, there's, there's this parallel between uh, verse, uh, up in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith, it's the same word there that's used in verse 12. He, for when he has been approved, when he has been tested, when he has been brought to, when he has, when he has been tested to the point of refinement, he will receive the crown of life. This crown of life is the final reward that is promised by the Lord to those who love him. A number of commentators mention that um, although James says here that the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him, uh, it's not likely that James has one particular passage or one particular verse in mind that, that lays out this promise. This is the theme of all of scripture. The crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Eternal life, eternal dwelling with him and reigning with Christ. James then warns about the inclination that we all have to blame God when we are tempted. We're going to dive into that and talk about the different ways in which we do this. But he identifies this in verse 13, this inclination that we have to, to blame God, to not take responsibility when we ourselves are tempted. And then verses 14 and 15 James highlights how, that, how we must remember that our sinful tendencies come from the lusts of our own sinful hearts. And then he describes the general pattern of our sinful hearts that follow. So what I'd like to do first is, um, if you, if you want to take notes or follow a little bit of an outline in your head, I want to talk first about the, the, the difference and the similarities between trials and temptations. In verse 2 of the letter, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And then now he is saying, um, blesses the man who endures temptations. What's the relationship between these things? And then I want to spend some time talking about th this idea that um, we are to make no excuses for our sin. No excuses for our sin because responsibility for our sin ultimately lies in our own hearts. And then thirdly, I want to unpack this method of sin as one commentator put it, the, the method of sin, the way that our sinful hearts work, uh, which James outlines in verses 14 and 15. So first of all, trials and temptations. In English, trial and temptation have different connotations. 
In general, we think of a trial as some sort of an external hardship or something that is brought to me, or perhaps that I am brought to, but it's, but it's a trial that is outside of me. Whereas a temptation refers at least in part to an appeal to the remaining sin in us. And so a temptation is, um, both of these, we can think of them as tests. One is more of an outward test, a test of um, I am responding to a particular situation that is brought to me. And a temptation, though, tends to be more internal, tends to be more my sinful heart and its inclinations responding to particular things. This distinction, I think, is good and helpful, and that's why our, our translators distinguish these things. But, I think, but it's important to note that in the Greek, there is just one word that is used for both of them. In verse 2, when, when James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, it's exactly the same word as when he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. And the verbs are the same as well. Trial, test, tempt, uh, trial, uh, the noun verb or the noun form and temptation in the noun form. All of, it's all the same word. It's all the same term. And so it takes a lot of uh, wisdom and understanding the context to know which way we should translate it. I think our translators do a, a fairly good job of that. But it's important to note that these things are, are this, it's, it all is the same term, trials and temptations. When James says then in verse 12, blessed is he who endures temptation, we should not think that he is starting a new topic. He's not, he's, he hasn't said at the beginning, um, there's these trials and now there's these temptations. If you're just reading the Greek, there's actually no difference in those terms. He's not starting something new. He's continuing the same uh, train of thought. So he's re- I think he's reintroducing the topic or returning to it uh, as it was introduced in verse 2. In the broad sense, I, I think this is a helpful uh, description of a trial or temptation or test from, uh, from one commentator. It is any difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ. Any difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ. James emphasizes to the Christians that he is writing to, uh, many of whom, again, were being persecuted and would be tempted to fall away from following Jesus, that it is to their good to remain steadfast in the face of these tests. In verse 13, then, James speaks of a slightly more specific kind of test. That is the temptation to commit evil or sin. And in the context here, you can, you can see that he's not just talking about trials or tests in general, but rather he's starting to get to particular temptations, the way in which our heart is inclined to uh, commit sin against God. So we see that there's some sort of a shift that happens between verses 12 and verse 13. But again, the same term is being used. At the, at the heart of every trial is the question of whether we will trust God through it or whether we will doubt him or perhaps curse him because of the hardship. The, it, it, I think it's important to note that, um, in, again, in the Greek, these are the same terms and they're very related. Every trial brings with it also, in, in English, we can talk about it this way, every trial brings with it also a temptation. Every hardship brings with it the temptation to doubt God. Uh, if you are undergoing financial hardships, it's very, that, that would be a trial. And in the, in the, at the heart of that trial, God is testing, do you trust him? Or do you doubt that he's going to carry you through, uh, through the end of the month? If there's a loss in, in your family, if you've lost a loved one, there's a, there's a temptation at the heart of that trial. 
the temptation to doubt whether or not God is good by removing that person from your family. All manner of, we, have, we encounter all manner of trials, but really at the heart of all of them, part of what makes them a trial, part of what makes them a test, is that there is the temptation to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's sovereignty, to doubt his, uh, his goodness over those circumstances. And again, perhaps even to curse him because of the hardship. James makes it clear that in verse 13, that when we face temptations in these trials, we cannot accuse God of tempting us to sin. We cannot accuse God of tempting us to sin. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. And again, here he means that I am tempted to sin, that I am tempted to commit evil. There are two reasons for this that James gives why we cannot say this. And the first is because it would be contrary to God's nature to do so. Let no one say that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And it would be evil for God to tempt somebody to commit evil. It would be evil for God to tempt somebody to commit evil, and therefore God cannot tempt. That's the logic of this statement. God does test us, but he is not the author of the sinful responses to those tests. It's striking when you, if you go back to one example of this idea that God tests us, uh, if you go back to Genesis 22, let's just turn there real quick. Look back at Genesis 22. This is the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac uh, up the mountain when God has told him to uh, sacrifice him. Okay, so the, the, the term, the similarity between the terms uh, trial and temptation or to tempt and to test in Greek, the same is true in Hebrew. It's the same words. And so if you look at verse 1 in Genesis 22, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Uh, depending on your translation, it might even say that God tempted Abraham. It's the same word. But I thought we just read that James says God does not tempt. We have to understand the context. God does not tempt in the sense that he invites us to sin, but he does test us. He does put us in places where our faith is tested. And, if, and, and when God puts us in that place, when your faith is tested, you can do one of two things. You can doubt God and give in to the temptation and sin, or you can endure. You can remain steadfast and by doing so, resist the temptation. And yet, the temptation to accuse God, to accuse God of it being his fault that he put us in that circumstance, and therefore we fell into sin, that temptation is one that has been with us from the beginning. Remember in the, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent comes to Eve, deceives Eve, she eats of the fruit, she gives it to her husband, he eats it. God shows up in the garden. God asks Adam, did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I told you not to eat? And Adam says, that woman that you gave me, she gave it to me, and, and also, by the way, I ate. That woman, passing the blame off to Eve, that you gave me, God, 
it's really your fault, God. That was a bad, dumb decision to give me that woman because she gave me the fruit. This is, this is the heart of man, the heart of mankind, to pass off the blame of our sin and to accuse something or someone else, but at the root of all of it, to accuse God. And this leads to the second reason that James gives us for why we cannot say that God, that I'm tempted by God. So the first reason is that it has to do with the character of God. We cannot say that I'm tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil and therefore he cannot tempt us to evil. The second reason that we cannot say that I'm tempted by God is because the source of sin is our own heart. This is James' point in verse 14. When each one is tempted, or each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now, we, we agree, as the, I like how the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, we agree that God sovereignly ordains whatsoever comes to pass. God is in charge of all of it. There's nothing outside of his sovereignty. And yet within that, God has given us responsibility over our own desires. God has given us responsibility for the desires of our heart. And so we cannot blame God for our sin. We cannot accuse God, like Adam did, of doing it wrong. Doing wrong by us. And that's why we sinned. No, God gives us total responsibility for our own desires. Our own desires that we pursue. God tempts us in the sense that he sets us in situations to test and prove our faith. Again, think of Abraham when God tests him, tests his faith to take Isaac up and sacrifice to him. God puts us in these situations to test us, to prove our faith. And God tests us so that we might learn to overcome the internal temptations of our sinful hearts. But Whenever we fall to the temptation, whenever we come to that test, and instead of trusting God, instead of remembering his promises, instead of turning to him in faith, when we are tested and we instead give in to the temptation to sin, that is entirely our own. There is no excuse. Now, as I'm going through this, you might, you might think that this, this idea that James has here that someone might say that I am tempted by God, that, you might think that doesn't really apply to me. I don't, I don't think that way. I don't think, I, I don't deal with that temptation. I don't think that God tempts me. I know that he doesn't tempt me. That's not, that's not my problem. Consider for a moment what you do tempt, or what you do blame for your temptations. We tend to blame our circumstances. It was a really long day at work. Traffic was really bad on the way home. Um, things aren't going well at home. My, my kids are disobedient. It's a mess. My relationships are really strained. Uh, there's been sickness going around. I've had financial hardships. School is really tough. I didn't sleep at all last night. We, we blame our circumstances. Uh, we might blame our background or our history. There's all these things that have been done to me. 
Uh, this is what I grew up with. This is how I was brought up. And so because of these things, I am inclined to act this way. We might blame it on our personality. I'm really rude to people, but it, it's really just because I'm an introvert. I, I really, I, 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 I gossip. I know I struggle with gossip a lot, but it's really because I just, I just love to talk to people and talk about people. I just, I just can't help it. It's just my personality. You might be in, uh, tempted to blame the other people who provoke you. Uh, I know that this is a particular challenge, both from experience and observation, for siblings. Right? Why did you hit your brother? Well, he... Why did you speak that way? Well, she was doing this. We, we blame the people around us. We blame our history. We blame our background. We blame our circumstances. And here's the question. Where do all of those things come from? Who gave you that history? Who gave you that background? Who gave you that personality? Who gave you that struggle? Who gave you that hardship? Who gave you those people around you? Who's it from? Do we believe that God is exhaustively sovereign over all of it? That's what the scriptures teach. And so, when we shift the blame to someone else or to our circumstances or our personality or our upbringing, we fundamentally are blaming God. We fundamentally are doing exactly what James is saying here. I am tempted by God. God brought these things to me. We're doing the same thing that Adam did. God, you brought this woman to me. This is just like Adam. You cannot blame the lack of sleep. A sibling, a spouse, your children, the stress of work, the busy schedule, your depression, the weather, the traffic, or anything else. Because to do so is to blame God. This is the hard reality that James gives us. It's a very hard reality. And in our pride, we hate it. We resist it. And even now, as the word's coming to you, you're, you might be tempted to be making excuses for why it's not true. Making excuses for why it doesn't apply to you. But this is the hard reality of Scripture. Your sin is totally and completely yours. 100%. The responsibility for your sin is all yours. And there is no excuse for it. The, the way that you snap at your sibling, the way that you uh, are harsh with your wife, the way that you uh, discipline your children in anger, the way that you cheat and steal from your employer, the way that you give in to drunkenness, the way that you uh, are addicted to video games. There is no excuse. This is the hard reality that Scripture gives us. We'll come back to that, but I, but I want that to sink in because it is hard for us to admit. James goes on 
to explain this a little bit and gives us, this is the, the third thing that I want to spend some time in. James gives us a method of sin. He sort of outlines for us, this is the way that our hearts work in verses 14 and 15. Let me just read this for you again. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. James says that we are tempted when we are drawn away by our desires and enticed. Now, um, some translations here, I think the King James and maybe others, uh, you, instead of desires here, translates it as lusts. Uh, again, this is one of the, the ways that um, our English language is sometimes more specific than the, than the Greek. Uh, we use these different terms, desires and lusts, and they have different connotations in English. Desires tends to be more neutral, could be good or bad. Lusts in modern English tends to always refer to sinful desires. Here, so I think it's appropriate, though, that uh, the King James and and other translations translate this as lust, because I think that's what James is getting at here. While desires are not always bad, given the particular context here, it is safe to conclude that James is referring to the corrupt desires that, as as Peter puts it in in 1 Peter 2, the desires that war against the soul. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, the, the fleshly desires, the fleshly lusts that war with the spirit. These corrupt desires draw us away, James says. We're we're drawn away by them. And so this makes us ask the question, what are we drawn away from? What are are these desires drawing us away from? Well, they're drawing us away from the way, from following Christ, from following God's law, from the truth, from the light, from the straight path. And, And we need to see here that this itself is the first sin, To be drawn away from the good is is to go to evil. To be drawn away from the truth is to be drawn to lies. To be drawn away from the light is to be drawn to darkness. That's the first corruption, the first sin. Um, Theologians would call this the, the stirrings of our lusts. These, uh, um, it is not wrong It is not wrong to be faced with a temptation. Again, we believe that God is exhaustively sovereign over all of it. So when you are are tempted to sin, when when you are faced with an opportunity to sin, when you're faced with that temptation, that in itself is not wrong. And remember that James calls the one who endures the temptation, who, who passes the test, he calls him blessed. But we can also fall into the ditch of thinking that simply not acting on a, that simply by not acting on a sinful desire, I, I have a, I, I'm faced with a temptation and I desire to give in to that temptation. That the, we can fall into the ditch of thinking that if I don't give in to that desire and don't actually commit some sort of outward sin, that therefore I haven't sinned. Um, this is, this is a, a false Roman Catholic teaching. That if I don't commit some outward sin, then I haven't really sinned. Jesus teaches strictly against this, remember? Jesus teaches us that when you, uh, you don't just commit sin when you murder your brother. You commit sin when you're angry with him in your heart. You haven't acted on that desire, but you've committed the sin of murder. 
Jesus says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. It's not just that you, you, you didn't go and actually commit adultery and therefore you've not committed sin. No, the sin began in your heart. So it's not wrong to be faced with a temptation, but sin begins when we give any countenance to the corrupt desires that spring up in our hearts. Any giving in, any, any um, allowing for that desire to take root in any way, any sort of coddling that desire is itself sin. Uh, Matthew Henry says about this, Stop the beginnings of sin, therefore, or else all the evils it produces must be wholly charged upon us. We need to cut sin out at the root, not just the fruit. Of course, it's, it's, um, there's a difference between committing adultery and looking at a woman with lust in your heart. There's a difference between actually going and murdering somebody and being angry with your brother in your heart. But scripture makes it very clear that those sins and all sins begin there. They begin with our corrupt desires. And when we begin to allow for it, when we begin to countenance it, James goes on, having been drawn away by these desires, we are then enticed. We could say that we are beguiled or lured into deception. We're enticed by it. We excuse and we indulge our sinful inclination. We allow ourselves to, to meditate on it. We give it space in our hearts and our minds. We deceive ourselves, beguiling ourselves or believing the lies of the devil. I think, again, we see this very clearly in the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to Eve, and the first thing he says to her is, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any of the trees in the garden? What's he doing there? He's drawing her away from the good. He's drawing her away from God. And she answers, and no, he says that we should not eat of the, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but of all the, or, or touch it, but the rest of the trees we can eat. So Satan has already begun the drawing away and now he entices her. And he says, yeah, but look at this tree. It's beautiful. The fruit is good. It looks like it would make you wise. It looks like it would make you like God. And Eve is deceived. She's beguiled. Having been drawn away, she's then enticed. And she falls into sin. Into, a, into an outward sin. James goes on, this desire then having conceived, when, when we've given it time, when we've given it root in our heart, and again, this, this can take, this can be momentary. When we give it that moment to take root in our heart, it gives birth to sin. And then the habits of sin, the life of sin, in turn brings forth death. The sin which is full grown uh, look at this in verse 15. The sin here that is full grown, the, the word here again is, is related to a word that has been already in the first 15 verses of James been a, a major theme. And that is this, this idea of perfection. Which we said is not perfect like we tend to think of perfect as pristine and sparkly, but rather mature, complete. 
when this sin is full grown, this, this idea of sin being full grown or fully mature is contrasted with the patience that James talks about in verse four, which matures us. I think we can see these things as opposing one another. In verse four, James says, let patience have its perfect or its maturing work that you may be perfect or mature, grown up and complete, lacking nothing. And compare that with verse 15. When this desire has conceived, because you weren't patient through that trial, because you did not hold fast through the trial, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully mature, it brings forth death. When the patience is fully mature, it brings forth a lack of nothing. You lack nothing. But when we give way to the sin and we allow it to mature, it brings forth death. Sin maturing brings forth death, but the steadfast trust in the Lord brings forth a fullness such that we really lack nothing. Our corrupt hearts seek to grasp after things which God has withheld from us, and sometimes for reasons beyond our knowing. That's really what, in one sense, is at root of all of, all of our sin. Think about it. Let's say that, let's say that somebody has, um, somebody has done, has, um, in a church afterwards, somebody says something and it offends you. And it was unkind. Let's say it was unkindly done. Somebody sins against you. And we're presented with this test. We can either respond the same way, or we can respond in a, in a, in a way that harbors bitterness towards them, on the one hand, either lashing out or harboring bitterness against them. Or on the other hand, we can trust God, believe his promises, let love cover a multitude of sins, know that I'm, for, I'm a forgiven sinner, and that's a forgiven sinner too. And if God is willing to forgive them, then I am too. That those are the two paths you can take. And if we take the first path, if we take the path of harboring bitterness, lashing out in anger, responding in the same way, returning evil for evil, what are we doing? We're grasping for something. Because we think we've been wronged in some way, we're grasping for what we think God is withholding from us. Maybe it's our, our reputation. We're trying to, to get back what belonged to us, to pay that person back for the wrong that they've done to us. We feel a lack. We feel a lack of respect. We feel a lack of kindness being done to us. We feel like we're owed better. And so in our, and, and what our sin is, is a result of us grasping for that, to fill it up ourselves. On the other hand, if we trust God, if we're patient through that trial, if we hold fast, if we steadfastly endure the temptation, the promise that James alludes to is that we will lack nothing. That lack that you feel when you've been wronged, God fills it up. God fills it up far better than you can. 
James also says that when, when you've been approved, when you have been tested, when your testing has been complete, you'll receive the promised crown of life. Do you, do you remember the eternal perspective in those moments? What God has promised to you? Do you rest in what God has given to you in those moments of temptation? Or are you grasping for these things yourself? He who endures temptation is blessed. When we've completed the testing, then James says, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that's so much better than the little bit of whatever it is that you're grasping for. When you feel, that, when you feel a lack, you turn and you covet your neighbor. When you feel a lack, you, you, you cry out and, and curse God because of what he's brought to you because you don't think he's blessed you. You don't think he's given you what you deserve. And we really do have a lack in those moments. But the promise of God is so much more than what we can fill ourselves by grabbing onto those things. Again, this, this is what Adam and Eve are doing in the garden. God withholds the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from them. We know from, the, from other parts of scripture that the knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. The knowledge of good and evil is, a, is, a, is something that is given to those who are mature. It, it's not as though God was withholding the knowledge of good and evil from them in eternity. But what Adam and Eve do is they grasp for it because they believe the lies of the devil that God is withholding good from them. And they grasp after it before God has granted it. They feel this lack because they believe the lies of the devil They've coveted what God has withheld from them. And, and all of mankind is plunged into death because of it. And we do the same thing. But on the other hand, those who are approved, those who are tested, those who endure temptation will receive the crown of life. Now, this sounds and is impossible. There's one way of reading this that says, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Meaning, when you endure temptation and when you've done it enough, when you've been fully approved, when your testing has been complete and you've aced every test, then God will give you the crown of life. And that's impossible. It's just frankly impossible. Because of our sinful hearts, because of the sinful desires of our hearts by which we are drawn away and enticed every day. But there is one who has done this perfectly. There is one who was tempted and did not sin. There is one who was tempted but endured the temptation. Resisting any inclination that arose from his human nature to doubt God's goodness and his promises. And his name is Jesus Christ. He endured perfectly. Unlike the first Adam, the second Adam endured perfectly. The first Adam shifted the blame. He didn't resist the initial sin. sin. Then he shifted the blame, blamed his wife, blamed God. 
evaded God, tried to hide it, made excuses for it. The, the second Adam resisted, endured perfectly. So how do we endure? We endure by keeping our eye on the prize. And again, this might sound at first a little bit like um, sort of a crass, selfish, um, self-centered Christian motivation. Be good, because God's going to make it awesome. Be good so that God can give you heaven. That's not what I mean. That's not what the scriptures mean. That's not what Paul means when he talks about setting his eye on the prize and running the race to the end so that he might receive the crown of glory. It's not crass selfishness for the Christian because it is rooted in our love for God and our trust in his promises. And James alludes to this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What's, what's necessary in order to receive this crown of life? Well, it says to those who love God. It doesn't say the crown of life is promised to those who, who finally get it right and who finally really endure to the end. The crown of life is promised to those who love God. Well, where does that, what if I don't love, how do I, what if I, I'm not sure that I love God? Well, scripture teaches us that you love God because he loved you first. Your love for God is not dependent on you getting it right. That crown of life that's promised to you is not dependent on you doing it well. That crown of life is dependent on God's word, God's promise. God tests you daily in order that you might be, able, might be made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And God tests you daily, and you know that you fail daily. You know. You know those tests that God brings to you, and he probably brings to you, if they're the kinds of tests that you fail, that probably means he brings them to you regularly. We try to excuse these by calling them besetting sins. No, they're tests, and you keep failing. And so God brings it to you again. But when you fail, God's promises are not lost. This week, today in fact, I'm pretty sure I can, I won't say a guarantee because God's God and I'm not, but I'm pretty sure that you, will be te- that you will be tested, that you will be tempted. And I'm also pretty sure that everyone in this room is going to fail. Does that mean that God's promises are now in jeopardy? Of course not. When you fail, God's promises are not lost because our perfect, perfect Savior has finished the tests. He finished all of the tests for you. He did it all the way to the end for the joy set before him, enduring the cross and the, and the shame. Trusting in God's promises, he resisted the temptations that the devil brought him in the wilderness. 
He resisted all of it. He endured all of it to the end. Finished it completely, and it's all yours. But God loves you in such a way that he wants you to grow up in Christ. He wants you to grow up. He wants you to be mature, to resist those temptations, to endure through them. He wants you to grow up so that you would lack nothing. It's, it's not like God is that, um, that really strict father that just keeps telling his, his sons, you just need to grow up, buddy. No, he, he wants you to grow up and mature because he wants you to not lack anything. He wants you to be filled. He wants you to be satisfied, complete. He wants us to grow up and he does this by placing these tests in front of us that include temptation to sin. Because every trial that you face, whether it's a long-standing uh, physical trial, long-standing hurt relationships, short momentary trials, all of them include a temptation to sin, a temptation to trust God or doubt God. The opportunity to trust him or to doubt him. And so we endure by keeping our eye on the prize, keeping our eye on God's promises, keeping our eye on what Jesus has already accomplished. We endure by asking for that promised, that, that promised wisdom that James talks about at the beginning of the chapter. The wisdom that if you ask for it, he's going to give it to you abundantly. Wisdom to endure through trials. We endure by resting in the hope that we will receive this promised crown of life. We endure by refusing to blame or make excuses. If there's one thing that you take away from this sermon in terms of something different that you're going to do this week, it should be this you're not going to make an excuse. You're not going to blame someone or something else for where you have transgressed God's law. That's how you endure. That's how God grows you up. We do all of this looking to Jesus. Hebrews tells us he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's done it all. He's completed it all. And so you can... And by God's grace, you will endure those temptations, imitating Christ all the way to the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is good because you are good. Your word is true because you are true. And your word cuts us. And you delight in that. You delight in exposing our hearts Teach us to delight in it as well, to see where we need to stop making excuses, to see where we need to stop blaming you for our sinful desires, for our sinful actions, for our sinful thoughts. Continue to expose us. Do not let us go on without growing us up to be more and more like Christ. Give us the grace to do this, looking to Jesus, believing your promises, knowing that in Christ all of these tests have been completed. 
And so give us faith to walk in the works that you've set before us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.